0: You're listening to a podcast from Vineyard Church of Augusta. For more information, visit VineyardAugusta.org. Yeah, so good morning. Happy Advent three. You guys good? You guys good? My name is Roger. I'm the associate pastor here. Um, If we haven't met, come say hello after the service. I would love to shake your hand and get to know you. Um, Really happy to be continuing our message series this morning called The Great Gift Exchange. Um, So a little thing about me, so I grew up in San Diego, California, also known as the motherland, and um, it's God's gift to the earth, Um, it's a wonderful place, and the interesting thing, though, that you may or may not know, if you've ever traveled to Southern California, you know this, um, but we get all these pictures of San Diego, the beaches, and all of this, and which is true, Um, but much of the landscape is actually rather arid, right? It's really, it's sort of like a a coastal desert. And so um, I'm not very horticulturally smart, but there's a lot of what I would just call scrub plants, right? (laughs) Like, I mean, there's some tall trees too. There's eucalyptus and things like that that thrive in a more arid environment. Um, But for example, so where I grew up in San Diego, we were very fortunate that in the city limits, we lived on uh, almost like a half acre of land or something, I think, which is two acres of land. Two acres of land, which in the city limits is kind of fantastic. That's my dad giving me corrections over here, so he's right. It's not just a random person telling me where I grew up. Um, But on, on this property, what was amazing is we had all of this land um, but most of it was sort of, we were kind of up on this hill and kind of behind our hill went down and sloped into a canyon, right? And we would play in this canyon all the time. And in the canyon was pretty much those scrub plants that I referred to earlier, right? Like, it was all like rocks and tumbleweeds. Like, my brother and I and our friends, we literally played with tumbleweeds when I was a kid. So if you've never seen a tumbleweed, you know, like old Westerns and the tumbleweed, like, they're real. They're real, and they really do that. And, and you can have a lot of fun with them as a little boy. And... each other. And so, um, but what was amazing is, so fast forward, we we moved in 1992 to Georgia. Um, We sold the house to an aunt and uncle on my mom's side. Um, And fast forward, nearly 30 years later, back in 2018, we got a chance to, my wife Angela and I and our kids got to go out to San Diego because my wife Angela and I were invited to co-officiate one of my cousin's weddings out on the bay overlooking San Diego Bay and the harbor and everything. It was fantastic. Um, But in the process of this, we got to go visit my old house. We got to take our kids to the place where I grew up, right, with the rocks and tumbleweeds and everything. Um, But as it turns out, my aunt and uncle are just fabulously gifted with green thumbs right? And they love plants. They love making things beautiful. And so, and I tried to find some photos and guys, the photos just don't even do due diligence to it, but they'd absolutely transformed this entire property with just lush plants and vegetation. And there were now like um, uh, water lines running all the way down into the canyon, right? For irrigation and stuff. And there were fig trees and all kinds of gorgeous stuff. It just, it felt like a different world. And the thing is, is as, as I go and I, as I read the, this passage we're gonna read this morning, as I've meditated on it the last couple of weeks, that's the image that keeps going to my mind, right? Suddenly, there's citrus trees flowering and in a bloom and you've got all this fruit that you can pick and gorgeous tropical flowers growing places because they are now irrigated and someone has been tending them. This is the picture that I think the prophet Isaiah is trying to paint for us that we're gonna see today. Today, I've got a message for you called Desolation for Joy, in the great gift exchange, we're gonna talk about how God is exchanging our desolation for joy. And, and the point I hope you guys grasp is this idea that Jesus, when he comes, Jesus comes like a gardener to exchange our desolate bad lands for a joyous oasis. And so before we read, we're gonna read Isaiah 35. Before we read that, would you guys pray with me? We're gonna ask the Holy Spirit to talk to us today. Spirit of God, come. You who breathed on these scriptures as they were being spoken and written to your people even so long ago, would you come and would you breathe on us now? Allow us to hear your voice and what you were saying to us as individuals and as families, as a church, as a community, as a nation, as a world. We want to hear what you are saying and even now we pause and we humble ourselves before you and we, we just kind of sit and we say as honestly as we can where it's appropriate, God, we feel desolate in some places of life. We just do. We need your joy. So spirit, come and breathe your joy to our hearts this morning. Amen. 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 So here we go. This is Isaiah 35. All through this sermon series, a great gift exchange, we're we're reading different selections from the prophet Isaiah as he's anticipating the coming Messiah. And here's what he says in chapter 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom it will greatly and it will rejoice greatly and shout for joy the glory of lebanon will be given to it the splendor of carmel and sharon they will see the glory of the lord the splendor of our god strengthen the feeble hands steady the knees that give way say to those with fearful hearts be strong do not fear your god will come he will come with vengeance With divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs, In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there and those whom the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. I've got some good news for you guys this morning. Now, before we look at some specifics of this passage, I think that the Lord has for us today, um, a little bit about Isaiah. So, Isaiah, it's a really large intimidating and potentially confusing book if you've ever tried to read it. And so the more tools that we kind of get in our tool belt to help us enter into Isaiah's world, the better off we'll be. Um, In the past two messages in this series, Andrew and Reese both did a really, really excellent job of helping us to understand Isaiah in his literary context, and his historical context. Um, I really encourage you, if you missed either of those messages um, or if you just want a refresher, I highly recommend going back and giving those a listen. If you're listening to this on the podcast in the future and you missed those, stop now. You won't hurt my feelings. Just go back and catch those. It'll help you out. This morning, though, I'm going to give you guys two separate things, I think, that are really key that will help us understand Isaiah. Now, and the first is this, is that Isaiah was giving a God's eye view of a time of international crisis, all right? He was giving a God's eye view of a time of international crisis. Now, Isaiah lived and did his prophetic ministry about 740 to 687 BC, if that helps you place him in the history of the world. Um, And the short story of the international crisis that he was was in the middle of was that um, these divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah, right? They already had this internal conflict. The kingdom was divided into two, but they were caught in a power grab for the area of land in the Middle East known as the Fertile Crescent. You guys heard of this? Right, kind of like the seedbed of all modern civilization and agriculture and things like this. Um, uh, there's three, this area spans kind of like uh, modern day Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, Israel, Jordan, Egypt, and parts of other countries around there too. Um, but attempting to conquer this region was three nations. You had Egypt coming up from the south, you had Assyria coming from the north, and Babylon from the west, right? And, and Israel and Judah are just kind of caught in this conflict. Now, because of this, Isaiah's ministry, as I heard one theologian recently put it, um, Isaiah's ministry was about crisis management. This is a real job, by the way. If you Google this, did you know you could be a crisis manager? They make a lot of money. Most of us are in the wrong business because there's always a crisis. There's always a crisis. But the basis of crisis management is how do you survive it, Right? It's not about preventing something, that's a different business, but like like you're in the middle of something, how do we survive it? And so Isaiah was helping God's people answer the question, how do we live faithfully as God's people when the whole world seems to be coming apart at the seams? And this is a question for us. How do we live faithfully as God's people when the whole world seems to be coming apart at the seams? Now, because the prophets were crisis managers, this is really true of most of them. If you look at when they did their ministry, it was always in these times of crisis. Um, they were dealing with problems right in front of them, right? They, they were not primarily in the business of future prediction. We often think of this when we hear prophecy, right? We think telling the future some way off in the, in the distant future. This was not necessarily their primary focus at all. They interpreted the times their time from a God's eye view. They were giving God's interpretation of what's happening right here, right now. And whenever they did talk about the future, which they often did, it was, it was pretty, most commonly, the near future, right? Within the next decade or two, right? They would say things like, if you don't do this, this bad thing is going to happen to you, Right? Or if you do this good thing, if you turn to God and return to him and worship in faithfulness, then these good things will happen to you. So at most, their future predictions tended to only be a few decades into the future because they were helping people with the present crisis right here, right now, in front of them. So that's the first one, right? Isaiah was giving this God's eye view of a time of international crisis. The second thing is that Isaiah was seeing these things from the prophetic perspective. Now, this is a technical term. Okay, this is an actual, like theologians call the way that prophets would view the future, the prophetic perspective. And the thing about many of these oracles that we read in the Old Testament is that as the prophets looked into the future, they were often seeing more than they realized, which is really kind of cool. And while some of the future was visible to them and they could describe it, some aspects of the future and what God was gonna do was actually hidden from them. And so they were looking for what theologians have turned this prophetic perspective. And to help illustrate this for you, I've got a few diagrams. Any visual learners in the house? Right, good, okay. If this doesn't help you, if this is just like a bunch of like theological like nonsense, you can tune me out for like two minutes and that'll be fine. Diagram number one, this is what it looks like. This is the prophetic perspective, all right? Imagine that the prophet is looking towards the future like he's looking at a nearby mountain. That's this is first mountain right here. Now, he may also be able to see glimpses of other mountains further away, but they're partially hidden behind the one that's his main concern, but they're there, right? Because uh, again, he's mostly interested in the near future. What is, what, is imminent, what is the imminent hope that he might be able to offer his people in this time of crisis? Most of them, it's not gonna help them to hear, hey, several hundred years from now, here's what's gonna happen. They wanna know, much more near, what, what are we to do, and what can we hope in? So there, there are other things that might be in view, even if they're not the focus, make sense? All right, you've seen mountains before, all right. Number two, now imagine for a moment that you are looking from the prophet's perspective. This is kind of what you would see, right? You're looking at this nearby mountain, the closest one, the, most, the one you're most interested in. You can see it more clearly, right? It's not being obscured. Nothing's hiding it or anything. But while looking at that mountain, you notice two other things. Is that one, you can see parts of other mountains further in the distance, right? You, they're part of the, what your, your, your vision is cast upon. But second is that there are large parts of those other mountains that are hidden from view, They're being blocked. They're there. You know they're there. Your mind kind of maybe fills in gaps, but you can't actually see them. Now, scholars tend to believe that most of the time, not only were the prophets not very interested in events that might happen hundreds, if not thousands of years later in the future, but that oftentimes they likely didn't even realize what they were seeing. If you imagine this view being kind of flattened, Right, And it looks like one big picture. It's as, if, it's as if the prophet's depth perception was off and they couldn't tell that one of those mountains was actually super far away. It just looks like one huge, large mountain. So the good news though, in all of this, once again, is that the prophets were seeing more than they realized. And as time has gone on, And as Jesus comes around, as other New Testament writers unpack this stuff, we start filling in the gaps and we realize what it was that God was really planning all along. Most notably, the advent, the coming, the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So back to the side view. Here's diagram number three. So to put this actually on the map of what Isaiah was seeing, right? Again, he started his ministry in around 740 BC up to like, um, about 50 years later than that or so. And so he's watching, he's looking towards this mountain. This present crisis he's dealing with is the main focus, but he's getting glimpses whether he realized it or not of two other things. And Isaiah is most notable for this in the Old Testament, is that he was also seeing the first advent, right? The coming of Christ, what we're about to celebrate in like 13 days or whatever, my kids are counting, right? That, that the first coming of Christ, he was seeing this, Even though it was about 700 years off at this point, he was seeing it. He was also seeing Advent too, the second advent, the second coming of Christ when he is coming again, not as a little baby hidden in a manger in an obscure backcountry, born of an immigrant family. He is also seeing the reigning king of the universe coming in power to renew all things and put all things to rights. It's kind of amazing. So what, Roger? right? That's some interesting theological nerdery, but what's that got to do with me, right? Like, how does that help me to live in a time of international crisis? That's a great question. That's what I'm hoping to make the rest of this message about, right? Now, check this out. So one more diagram, diagram four. This is important for us to get here. You are here. This is where we live, This is our time, this is our place. We are somewhere in between the times. We are somewhere in between the first coming of Christ and the second, which means this, Isaiah partially saw our time. It means that whatever the hope is that he is expressing, he was mostly concerned about his own people in 740 BC. But by the amazing grace of God, he is also seeing our hope. He's seeing what God is doing in our own time in the midst of our own crises. He sees that God is actually doing even more in our own time in the midst of our own crises than Isaiah was even aware of, or that he could even imagine. Because God is still there. The mountain is still there. Something is still happening. The kingdom of God is causing things to occur. And what we see in this too, I think that's encouraging and exciting, is that guys, God is not done. This is the glory of Advent. We're not just remembering that Jesus came once and then great, let's give some presents and like bake a turkey or something and you know, have a good time and then we'll just go to New Year's Eve, right? Like, it's bigger than that. It's not what God did then. It's not that he came once, it's that he's returning. He came to start something and he intends to finish it. The prophetic visions that Isaiah and others had are not yet complete. Our great hope is that Jesus will return and complete the renewal of all So this is the message to you today. To those of you who are living through a personal crisis, and some of you are. Some of you, we know about them. Some of you, you're keeping them very quiet. But to those of you who are living in a time of personal crisis, within this time of international crisis, there's good news for you. And this good news again is that Jesus comes like a gardener to exchange our desolate badlands for a joyous oasis. So here's three aspects of this. Here's three aspects of this that I wanna unpack. And I think this is brilliant, right? What Isaiah is seeing here in his poetry and in the imagery and in the metaphor, is just, it's fantastic. Is The first is this, is that Jesus will exchange our desolation for joy in our environment. This has been kind of blowing my mind, and I'm going to try to keep this part as short as as I can today. But this scene in Isaiah 35 is that of a return from exile, right? You hear these bits about my people will return, they're going to enter Zion with singing, all of this kind of stuff. Um, It's a picture of a second exodus, Right? Most scholars believe that this chapter 35 is actually referring to the Babylonian exile, which is going to happen in another 70 or 80 years or something like that, if I'm not mistaken. Um, that, but that one day the people will return from exile in a second exodus. Now, whereas the first exodus, if you remember the story, right? there's a book called Exodus, you can go read it. If you remember in the first exodus, God's people trekked across the desolate wasteland of the Sinai Desert on the way to the promised land. They walked through the desert. They knew what it was like to travel through a desert. Right? But now, at this new point, this hope that they have is that they're going to return from exile to the promised land, but as they cross the wilderness, it is transformed beneath their feet. This is the picture. As they're walking across the wilderness, it's, it's just transformed. It's like a Disney movie, you know? Like a Disney princess starts walking through a field and like <laughs> flowers and birds and bees start going. This is what's happening. Not only does this this make their own journey home more pleasant, more joyful, right? They're singing, right? They're leaping for, for joy like deer, right? Not only does this make their way easier, it causes the creation itself to flourish again. It causes it to come back to life and blossom and bloom. Listen to how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message version of this. Wilderness and desert will sing joyously. The badlands will celebrate and flower like the crocus in spring bursting into blossom, a symphony of song and color. Springs of water will burst out in the wilderness. Streams will flow in the desert. Hot sands will become a cool oasis, thirsty ground, a splashing fountain. Even lowly jackals will have water to drink and barren grasslands will flourish richly. transformed. Why? Because God's people are marching across it back to the promised land. But they're not just returning to a city, they're returning to the garden. You guys get pictures of this? They're returning to the garden and creation itself rejoices and gives glory to God, the creator. Why? Because God is a gardener. God is a gardener. This is, what, this is why John, in his gospel, when telling, when telling the story of Mary Magdalene meeting the risen Jesus after he had risen from the dead, she didn't realize it yet, tomb is empty, she meets the risen Jesus and she mistakes him for the gardener. She wasn't wrong. <laughs> because God's new creation had already begun. That's the message, guys. This is why the vision that we get in the book of Revelation at the very end, read the last couple chapters of Revelation. The picture we get is of a stream that flows from beneath the throne of God through a garden, through an orchard, out into the whole world, bringing the flourishing life of God everywhere, healing the nations. That was the beginning. That's gonna be the end as well. If we think... If we think that God's redemptive work is only about human souls, then we're missing the bigger and more glorious picture. It's super fun, gets even funner, right? This also includes number two, is that Jesus will exchange our desolation for joy in our bodies. And this is happening in the picture of this, right? As they're marching across the wilderness, God's people, the creation is transformed and their bodies are healed. Not, and not only does Isaiah give these vivid depictions of that, of the environment, but he's showing this is what happens to the physical person because God values the creation and God values physical bodies. Listen again how Peterson translates this. I love it. Blind eyes will be opened, deaf ears unstopped. Lame men and women will leap like deer, the voiceless break into song. Now, uh, showing all my cards here, all right? I I don't believe in reading the Bible literally. I believe in reading the Bible literately. all right? Because there's a lot of different types of literature in the Bible. Now, which means sometimes we just have to do some careful thinking about what is literal and what is metaphorical right? Just what, what in the Bible are we meant to take very literally? And what in it are we meant to take metaphorically? And I know what you're asking. Some of you guys are getting super uncomfortable right now. I'm okay with that. Buy me some coffee. I'd love to talk about it. Um, now, I know what you're asking. So then, is Isaiah 35 literal or metaphorical? Yes. Yes. I think it's both at the same time, so hold on to that. Now, Before, but before we can consider the metaphorical implications of Isaiah 35, I think we have to also acknowledge that it's intended to be literal. I think it's intended to be literal about what's happening to our environment and to the very creation that God made that he loves. I think it's also intended to be read literally what is happening to human bodies as they are returning from exile to the promised land as well especially because all of this we know was brought into further reality through the person of Christ. This is what we're remembering in Advent, right? If you read Luke 1, 1 and 2, you get this wonderful birth story of Jesus, right? Angels show up, babies are leaping in wombs, people can't talk, then they can talk and they praise God, Babies born, it's awesome. Um, Luke 3, you get Jesus's baptism, right? If the whole thing skips forward like 30 years you get Jesus' baptism. Luke 4, at the beginning of Luke 4, Jesus is tested in the wilderness. Oh man, there's so many like overlaps here. I'm not even gonna try. He's tested in the wilderness. He comes out of the wilderness and it says that he returns in the power of the spirit, enters the synagogue in Nazareth, is handed the scroll that contained the prescribed reading for the day and he stands up and he reads this. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolls the scroll back up, hands it back, says, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And then just to prove this is no mere metaphor, he went about doing literally just that, right? It happened, proclaiming good news to the poor and the oppressed and the disenfranchised. He freed people who were prisoners to their own sinful natures and to their own hopelessness. He made blind people see again. He made deaf people able to hear. Lame people got up and walked and ran and leapt for joy and more and more and more and more. So yes, the good news is that Jesus will exchange desolation for joy in our bodies. This is also why the great Christian hope is not floating off to some disembodied experience in the sky for all eternity, but is resurrection. Sometimes we experience this exchange for desolation, for joy in our bodies partially in the present, but one day we will taste it fully in the future kingdom of God where there'll be no more sickness and no more death. Yeah. All right. Now, now I think once we get the literal stuff down and the practical stuff down, we can think about metaphors. So here we go. Number three, number three, Jesus will exchange desolation for joy in our souls, right? If the environment is where you live, if the body is the physical means by which you live in that place, the soul is that inner you, right? That, that inner person that's difficult to define, but, but that contains the essence of who you are in your person, your hopes and your dreams, your desires, all of that stuff. Now, just I kind of mentioned this already, but let's pause for a moment and reflect on the fact that are we not living in time of international crisis? Maybe I should amend that because it seems that there are often more crises at once, right? There are more crises going on in the world that our heads can comprehend or that our hearts can bear. Sometimes I just can't check the news anymore. And in the midst of all of that, are you not living in your own personal crisis? Some of us are. This is the same for Isaiah's day. They had these big international crises and there were some people that's like, man, I can't even worry about these Assyrians because of all this stuff that's happening in my own life. I, just, I don't have bandwidth for it. That's, just, that's human reality, right? Like that's, that's, that's human existence. But It's that very existence that, that, that Isaiah speaks into, that there's good news. He says, energize the limp hands, strengthen the rubbery knees, tell fearful souls Courage, take heart. God is here, right here, on his way to put things right. And redress all wrongs. He is on his way, he will save you. And God's invitation to you is for you to return home to Him. This is the whole deal with the highway in the wilderness, right? It's the pathway back to His presence. And on this road, it says, Nothing and no one dangerous or threatening is on it, only the redeemed will walk on it. The people God has ransomed will come back on this road. And they'll sing as they make their way home to Zion unfading halos of joy encircling their heads. Thank you, Eugene Peterson, for that. He's dead. I just believe he can hear me. All right. Unfading (laughs) halos of joy encircling their heads, welcomed home with gifts of joy and gladness as all sorrows and sighs scurry into the night. That just sounds like a Christmassy line, doesn't it? Sorrows and sighs scurry into the night. Guys, let Jesus, the good gardener, exchange desolation for joy in your souls today. Let me wrap up. I just wanna give you guys three really practical things. Like what do we do about this, right? Like how do I live differently in light of this if I, if I feel so compelled? Three questions for you. And I don't, I don't intend to even answer all these. I've got some suggestions, but I don't even intend to answer these fully for you. First question is this. How can you join God in the renewal of creation? How can you join God in the renewal of creation? Because every act of tending the earth is a prophetic act. Because it tells of the renewal of all things that will one day be a reality In Jesus, every act of caring for the earth is an act of partnering in solidarity with the creator who still loves it. So some of you guys have gardens. Some of you guys have plants. Some of you guys live on streets where people just throw litter, right? But here's a real practical suggestion. We already heard about this earlier is join us this coming Saturday, December 18th. What was the time? Three to six? Oh, you could come to the party. What's the one before that? We're actually doing work, nine to 11. Nine to 11 is work, three to six is party. Do them both, right? Right? Even the renewed creation in Isaiah 35 is a place of partying. They're celebrating, they're leaping for joy, they're singing songs, it's great. Maybe join us on Saturday. Maybe you're not much of a gardener. Maybe it's been a long time since you've just like gotten your hands dirty with the earth and doing stuff for it. Maybe that's just like a really sacred act that you can do as a way of saying, okay, God, I'm in on this. Second question, where do you need God's touch in your physical body? Where do you need God's touch in your own physical body? And we believe in this, man. We believe in healing. We pray for folks for healing every week. We see stuff happen all this all the time. But this is why. This is the why behind all of it. It's because every request for God to bring physical healing to someone's body is an expectant call for God to do in the present what he is already intending to do in the future. It's saying, as Jesus taught us, let your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven, here in the present, as it will be in the future. Maybe today you just need to like, let someone pray for healing for you. It's that simple. So if you're suffering in any kind of way, if you've got anything going on, like don't sit there and go, oh, well, maybe is that for me? Is that for me? Like it is, it is. You don't have to like feel some spiritual woo-woo about it. Just, you go for it. And finally, number three, and this is the one that's gonna be harder for some of you. And this might take more time. Some of you might need to get a spiritual director of which we have a number in the church and let them sit with you and begin processing this question with you. What aspect of your life feels like a desolate Badlands? Just ponder that for a moment. Some of you had something instantly in your mind. What aspect of your life right now just feels like a desolate Badlands? Badlands. Like, in in what ways are you experiencing desolation that it feels arid and dry and lifeless and not flourishing and not joyful and not an oasis and there's no singing going on and if somebody comes in singing, you're gonna punch them in the throat? You know that feeling. That's you. You don't have to raise your hand, but you know it's you. The hope of Jesus... The hope of Jesus does not mean that we just have to grit our teeth and bear it until the kingdom comes. It means that the kingdom can come now, that your desolation can be exchanged for joy now. It's not like magic. It's not perfect. It's often still a mixed bag. That's why in the vineyard we talk about living in the now and the not yet of the kingdom but don't settle for the not yet when some of the now is being offered to you. Why don't you stand with me?